Hi, my name is Jeff, and I am a product marketing manager here at Verkata. Uh, today, I'm joined by a few members of our team. If you guys don't mind taking a moment to introduce yourselves to our audience. Sure. I'm Morgan Harris. I'm one of the uh, solutions engineers here at Verkata on the enterprise uh, sales team, helping customers uh, figure out how to uh, sell how to install cameras, use cameras, and, and make uh, good network decisions. And hi, I'm Bjorn Pave. I'm the Senior Director of IT here at Verkata. Uh, my team leads up IT, and we support all different parts of the business, pretty much anything that's plugged in. Yeah, um, and I'm Ryan Malley. I'm also one of the solutions engineers over here with a very similar job as uh, Morgan. Awesome. So thanks for joining us today, guys. So today's topic, we're going to be talking about, you know, data and like where it's stored. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways that people are storing data today, whether it's on-prem or in the cloud. And we're going to really dig into each of these. And that's kind of the theme of today's topic, which is it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your data is? So I'm going to start out and kick it off to Bjorn. So Bjorn, you know, you're the one who owns and manages all the data here at Verkata. So it's 10 p.m., eh, more like noon right now. But where is our data and how is it being secured? Well, we are in the cloud and it is securely in the cloud, Jeff. Uh, yeah, we're completely hosted here. All of our data is in AWS, in G Suite, and uh, is helping me to sleep at night knowing <laughs> that it's safe, redundant, backed up, and, and, and up in the cloud. So has Verkata always been in the cloud? Like what was kind of the process when you joined the company? Uh, you know, we were at one point, you know, around 50 people. Now we're over 300 and it's maintaining a lot of different data for a lot of different folks. You know, what's kind of been that transition from then to now? Yeah, so we were born in the cloud, which is great. And it's saved us a lot of hassle and headache. I know that the transition to cloud is a rough one. And I'm sure we're going to talk about it today. Uh, amongst other things. But yeah, thankfully, we were already in that position. And that's just very aligned with our business here. Helps us to scale. Yeah. I, uh, I'll I go ahead. Feel like, I kind of feel like, though, it was really easy a few years ago, kind of before everybody got so into cloud, to say all of my data is in the data center, my data center is down the hall. I, I physically can look at it, point at it, know where it is. And I think when you're making that transition between on-prem and cloud, it gets it can get blurry at times as to where your data is if you're not kind of keeping good control over it. And then now with you being all on cloud, you know, or in cloud, you know where you're told your data is. But it's I think for a lot of people, it's that disconnect of being able to walk down the hallway and point at a box and say, my data is there. Um, one thing I, mean, I know that was definitely one of the big reasons behind our move to the cloud very early on was that I think Verkata has had four HQ locations in the past five years, um, one of them starting in, in our founder's garage um, even. So just making sure as we're moving and scaling from place to place that everything was hosted in the cloud to begin with makes that process a lot easier instead of migrating a bunch of physical equipment. Yeah. And so let's talk about that for a second. So, you know, we've talked about transitioning to the cloud and a big part of that is that migration path. Um, you know, for Bjorn, you know, what I'd love to hear is maybe from a past experience or at Verkata, you know, what has that migration process looked like? So, you know, where do you kind of start? How do you plan that? What are your considerations, you know, time versus money? Like, what does it kind of look like when you're putting together that migration plan? Yeah, that's one that you really have to take a look at. Are you 
going to do this by department? Are you going to do this in a pretty methodical way, moving uh, workloads and services up into there, uh, up into the cloud? Uh, I think that a lot of the challenge is just the amount of data that people are going to try to move depending on going you know, directly from on-prem into a cloud environment. You have to be looking at the cost, of course, first and foremost, and how that's going to scale, what data is going to be up in the cloud that, and how often it's accessed. Um, you know, there's tons of considerations. It's for sure a, a big project for, for any company, almost of any size, uh, to, to undertake and just do it in an efficient way. Well, and I kind of think when you, you've got the logistical challenges, right, of figuring out how you move that data, what's the most efficient move, but then you do have those cost things. And when you're looking at the total cost to ownership of, is it less expensive to be on-prem versus in the cloud? How do you kind of mix and match those two to make the most financial sense mm -hmm. as well as the most logistical sense? And I think that's where a lot of people kind of always struggle that the cloud is to me a little bit more transparent about cost. Mm -hmm. It's a, you know, it is a, it's a fixed fee, you know, the duration of that fixed fee, it's very predictable relatively. But I think on-prem, people kind of tend to discount some of the, the maintenance costs, some of the kind of operational costs, the power, the electricity, the cooling, For sure. and then kind of all the random surprises. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I think outside of opening up a new business unit or adding hundreds of new users, you don't necessarily get surprise cloud bills. Yep. But having a data center, I can tell you, at least from my experience, I got a lot of surprise bills and a lot of surprise chargebacks. Uh, onto you know different business units because uh, well we now need to replace this air conditioner we need to do this system upgrade or do these other things you kind of have this kind of stepping of like okay costs are low for a couple of years because you just bought all new equipment mm -hmm. then there's some issue and some major costs and maybe they drop back down and how did you kind of like how has that transition both from the logistical side and then kind of the financial side been for you, because you've seen both sides of this. Yeah, for sure. You know, the transition for me, the last time I did it was kind of moving, and this was quite a while ago now. I mean, luckily, this is two jobs now that I've been at, uh, two businesses that have been really cloud-focused first. Um, I guess that's not entirely true. I, I can go back to that later with the media stuff that we have brought up before, where certain data some things need to be kind of on-prem, at least right now for some businesses, some business models. But uh, yeah, for getting it, it's been sort of staged in the way that like move to a data center and then move from there. Uh, one of the things that just came to mind while you were talking was also the cost of having somebody watching for failures. I mean, you have hard drive failures that happen. I remember freaking out every time, you know, a hard drive failed because sometimes failover and rebuild just doesn't happen as seamlessly as you expect it to. Performance is sometimes taking a hit when that happened. And depending on your array, you don't want two drives going out at once. It can be, you know, and again, depending on your configuration, that could be pretty detrimental. So there's always that, like, somebody's on call, somebody's watching for those alerts, going to swap a drive. Do you even have a drive on hand? Are you next daying, you know, your drives? Yeah. Are, are they, or do you have that four hour plan? then did somebody actually renew that service agreement? Right. And so then you spend the first four hours getting yourself associated to the uh, the right contract to get the replacement drive. Yeah, I don't miss any of that. No. I, I don't know about you, but <laughs> I you. definitely don't miss uh, any of that. The anxiety that comes up talking about it is just like, oh man, you know, I was I, ready to be a, a, 
you know, woken up every night. I know. I, I enjoy sleeping through the yeah. night peacefully yeah. now. It's a, it's a pretty good feeling. Different world. Cool. Yeah. And so, I, you know, you guys have talked about a lot of different things that, you know, are brought into consideration when, you know, transitioning to a cloud type of situation. Um, I think all three of you have really interesting perspectives. You know, Bjorn, you have it a lot from the internal side of things. And then Morgan and Ryan, you have it a lot from the external side of things. But, you know, what are the types of um, different concerns and um, basically paths to getting this approved by maybe an executive team or, you know, the internal stakeholders to make this logical move from, you know, obviously something that we been talking about just here in the last five minutes of being very complex and concerning to people who are in that position to something that delivers greater peace of mind uh, for both yourself in that role as well as for the broader business. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I know Bjorn is responsible on our side for making sure that the cloud services that we are investing in pass all these sort of litmus tests that they need to. But I know Morgan and I are sort of on the other end of that process where as a cloud man, as a cloud service provider on our end, we are the ones receiving a lot of those questionnaires. Um, and you do see a lot of the same answers and questions begin to pop up. Um, particularly because I think now in 2020, the grasp on how to do cloud well is pretty ubiquitous at this point. Um, there are a lot of differences between what people do, but there are best practices and at least making sure that everyone is following them is a good place to start. So we started today with, with asking where your data is. And that's honestly a lot of the first questions that come up on a lot of these questionnaires, literally where physically is the data. Um, and particularly it's really... Okay. Yeah, it's really simple. Like if you're just going to AWS directly or, or Azure and you're spinning up a VM there, you pick the instance, you pick the location, you, you know, you know exactly what's going on there. But I think for a lot of uh, kind of folks, manufacturers like ourselves, where we run on top of uh, AWS, um, we're very transparent about what we do with data, where your data is, your control over your data. But I think that there's a lot of people that have applications that run in the cloud. And you don't ever quite get as much detail about that. And, and so much to Ryan's point, we have a lot of customers that kind of are asking those questions up front. And, um, you know, I think that's kind of then where you get into that depth of conversation around hybrid cloud versus, cl you know, pure cloud. And, and then ultimately, you know, kind of makes it a little bit easier where people, again, I go back to that original analogy in the beginning, like to point at a box and know exactly where their data is. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Ryan, you've probably seen that from a lot of customers, just talking to them, trying to get wrap, wrap their head around, you know, things that were in a closet before are now not in that closet. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it brings up a probably a topic we're going to keep coming back to, which is the difference between someone keeping your data and someone owning your data. Um, and this, this really applies to a large number of cloud services where the answers to that question might be different. Um, so for instance, in our case on Verkata's end, we might store your data, we might, keep, we might encrypt your data, we might have a lot of control over your data, but at the end of the day, you're the one who owns it. Whereas with a lot of other providers, like what you see maybe from like a Comcast is that, or like even Google, anyone that has these advertising budgets, if I send a request to Google, they're not only the ones who are processing that and handling that information, they are at the end of the day, the people who own that information as well. Um, so the distinction there is one that I think could be better understood by a lot of people that are um, investing in these cloud solutions as to particularly not only who owns it, but who also controls it. 
Totally. I added recently to our cloud questionnaire that we send out to our vendors uh, a section on where our data is, you know, uh, is it encrypted at rest? Is it, uh, are you monetizing from our data is one of the questions that I've asked as of recently. You know, I don't, I do like to think that uh, any vendor we're going to go with, it is our data, we own it wherever it sits. So uh, I, I think that that's a question worth asking for anybody and anybody listening, you know, if you don't have a cloud questionnaire to send out to clients, you really have to. I mean, there are some real baseline questions that need answers uh, regarding the security and the use of, of your data and their services. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Sure. I mean, I think even looking at, you know, when you have support incidents and you bring on a support engineer, how can they access it? Do you know when they're accessing it? You know, there's a lot of kind of questions there. And I kind of, like I said, I keep coming back to this analogy that it's a lot easier when you had one of those hard drive fails and you could literally watch the guy go in the other room, swap the hard drive, you had it in your hand. You knew once that you were done with that drive where that data was going because he'd hand you the drive and you knew he wasn't walking out with data. And I think, um, you know, we've kind of seen this in, in different verticals in different industries where sometimes good things gone bad, uh, data is used for other means, whether that's to make, to make a product better, to do different things. Um, and then where is that data and kind of who's accessing it? And now that, you know, you've got a lot of different kind of, a lot of different things, a lot of moving parts in there about that and, and kind of really knowing understanding that and feeling comfortable in that is is kind of that new anxiety that keeps you up at night versus worrying about something to physically fail. Yeah. Yeah. And then are there things you're able to do to ensure that that is actually happening or are you purely putting your trust in a vendor to do that? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good question. And there is a certain amount of trust in it. I think Morgan's point earlier to the fact that when you send stuff up to the cloud, you really do have to trust that where people are saying it's going is where it's going. That mm-hmm. being said, um, there are different reporting structures um, in place to make sure that what you say is actually true. Um, I'm thinking stuff like a SOC 2 report um, and things like that. I mean, there are external agencies that will run things like security tests and penetration tests just to make sure everyone's following the right policies. Um, Bjorn, on your end, I'm actually kind of curious. Um, I know we add questions to our questionnaire. Um, what sort of template did you start with? Is this a complete Bjorn, uh, Bjorn Paver original or did we start? I'm I'm totally uninvented that way. No, (laughs) I I did find some resources online. I got kind of, it's a sort of mix of different, uh, partners and peers reviews that the parts that I think pertain to us the most and are most critical I put in there. I don't make it so it's completely, you know, it'll slow the business down in acquiring tools. I try to make it so these are pretty common questions and very, you know, very, I don't want to say basic, but, you know, common fundamental scenarios. Yeah, fundamentals. Thank you. Exactly. Uh, So yeah, that's, that's sort of how I put it together. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do want to go back for one second to that question, Jeff, because really you you want to know as much as you can about your vendors and, mm-hmm. the, and the companies that you're working with. So doing some research, at least on my end, when we're uh, evaluating new tools, I want to see things like where that company's headquartered, yep. who their clients are currently, you know, different laws apply to different parts of the world. And obviously you want to make a bet that these companies that you're working with are not nefarious in any way with their intentions. And I think with a lot of 
practice in Silicon Valley, traditionally, it's been on the up and up as far as what they're reporting and what they're doing. And yep. it would be completely detrimental to some of these larger companies, obviously, that we partner with that, you know, to lie about it. So obviously, there is a level of trust, you read their terms, their conditions, and uh, you send them the questionnaires and, and you, you know, look for any red flags. Some of those have already had problems with exposure and stuff in the past. So either they've hardened the other way and gone really strong or they've suffered from it. It's definitely one of the yeah. benefits, and that's definitely one of the benefits of using a larger public cloud provider like AWS. I think what you'll the, the worries that you and concerns from trust uh, from a trust standpoint are a lot more critical when you're dealing with a smaller company who is probably advertising cheaper rates um, or and it, or is new on the field. Um, one of the benefits of using a public um, cloud provider like AWS is that you also can look up the people who trust them and see if you trust their customers. Like we're talking about people like Netflix, LinkedIn, um, ESPN, like major, major companies who have assuredly done their own due diligence as well. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, we've mentioned it a few times that we use AWS and it's not really a plug for them because I don't think they need the help. But you know, maybe we can dive into that a little bit more, you know, this whole idea of a, you know, public cloud and from, you know, maybe it's from a bigger company or even a smaller public cloud versus, you know, maybe the private cloud side of things, you know, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages? Obviously one of them, you know, we talked about here was a lot about trust and, you know, we know which companies they're working with and, you know, you see a big name such as a Netflix and, you know, okay, if Netflix is using them, that must mean that they're a pretty trustworthy company. But what are some of the other disadvantages or advantages to consider when you're looking at these two options? Um, you know, I'd love to dive into that a little bit more um, because I think it's a, probably something that a lot of people do come across. Well, I, mean, I think there's kind of two angles you kind of start with when you look at that. One is the workload, understanding, you know, the, the specific type of the workload and like where you're accessing that data from and does it really make sense to have it in one location versus another? Uh, and then I think you kind of look at it from, do you have, you know, for us, we're an, we're an international company. Uh, you know, we have offices in other countries. We provide services in other countries. So there's complexity around that, you know, related to different uh, requirements for data GPDR in Europe, uh, data in Canada, you know, different requirements inside the United States. So, you know, I think if you kind of start with just looking at the workloads, Ultimately, right, we're a camera company. Video is a complicated workload. Moving video across a network, internet connection, streaming, all that sort of stuff. It's not as simple as email. Moving email <laughs> to the clouds, you know, to me, one of those like very easy, yeah. no-brainer. We're accessing it from everywhere. I never want to manage another exchange server again in my life. <laughs> like it's a pretty, pretty simple low-hanging fruit. Definitely. But I think, you know, as you kind of sit as an IT administrator. I feel like, you know, you've got to kind of sit there and look at those workloads and see what makes sense. Now we're hybrid cloud, so that kind of changes what that looks like. But as you kind of figure out, you know, you get requests from the business, you look at the kind of the workload, the data, what they're trying to do. How does that impact how you kind of pick a provider or pick a solution? Yeah. Yeah. For, for me, it, I always like to back the right horse. You know, I'm trying to find somebody who is well-established, good clientele, you know, in it for the long-term and inventive, like innovative. Uh, you know, you don't want to just stagnate. It's not good for the business. So you're looking for somebody who's bringing innovation to their product a lot. Um, 
I'm trying to think of a good example. You know, we're using Zoom. I think it's, think it's a great example as far as their innovation uh, and their, they know who's chasing them. I mean, they have the biggest companies chasing them right now. They have Microsoft and Google chasing them for, for that market share. Uh, and it's for sure, you know, made everybody kind of step up their game. And now yeah. in this whole work from home environment, um, those sort of things, but you know, that's a workload there again, that kind of makes sense to me in the cloud because ultimately you're typically not video conferencing, uh, like we are right now, mm -hmm. uh, with our colleague Ryan, who's in another room in the same building. Uh, that's not a typical conference sort of thing. That's yep. a lot of equipment when we could probably just walk about 20 feet away. Yeah. But, uh, you know, typically you're, you're meeting with people on other sites. So when you look at that kind of that data workload, that's, sense. it makes sense, yep. right. To kind of put that mm -hmm. out there. And I think that's kind of where, you know, if you look at some other technologies, some things are better on prem because they're just, they're too big. They're too big to move, too big to go fetch it. Once you put it up there, bring it back. I don't know if there's many though. What? I I can't think of many because, like, obviously, ERP is all now hosted, and that was a big one on-prem for a while. Those ERP companies moved very slow to host everything. SAP and Microsoft Dynamics, like, host half your data center. That was rows and rows of gear. Yeah, you know. So yeah. I think probably everybody just walked in the data center, looked at that, and got scared, and said, <laughs> "You know, we'll push that project out a little bit." Yeah, yeah, it is a lot. That's a huge project, moving an ERP system for sure. I think video, though, I think video is one of those that's tough uh, to put in the cloud because it doesn't play well with a lot of kind of challenges, you know, with internet bandwidth. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of, you know, bandwidth's big. You look at even Netflix, you know, their biggest challenge is getting bandwidth down so that people can watch Netflix wherever they are. Yeah. Um, and so when you look at some of those technologies, like that's just a giant thing to move around. And if you're talking to somebody about taking, um, you know, a bunch of video, and constantly streaming it to the cloud so you can access it offsite, it doesn't make as much sense. And I yeah. think that's where mixing the two technologies back together in the hybrid cloud simplifies that. You're not constantly moving the data set to the to match the workload. Yep. You're adjusting the workload to the data set. You know? Yep. And, right. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. Oh, and so I was gonna say, you know, we talked about Zoom and you know, it's no secret that you know, as Zoom has grown immensely during COVID-19, you know, some of the security concerns popped up, the vulnerabilities that popped up. And, you know, I would love to kind of touch into, you know, with Zoom being a cloud-based solution, you know, how the cloud was an advantage to them to be able to take care of maybe some of these security concerns right away uh, versus, you know, maybe something that was more on-prem and how you'd have to deal with that. Yeah, this was a classic example, the way this all unfolded with Zoom. They were a very consumer, <clears throat> you know, a business also, but consumer-focused brand at the same time. Uh, and then all of a sudden, they got hit with a very business-first approach. And so really needing to harden that to a point that corporations felt comfortable, you know, enterprises felt comfortable with their security measures was a, a challenge to them, and they had to hit it right away. And their competitors took advantage of it as quickly as they could to, to point out that these are security flaws that could compromise, you know, the Zoom bombing was the perfect example. <laughs> like that was the one that came up immediately. So again, here you have this very collaborative space that's built into this kind of like, oh, I want my friends and family to join this call very easily. I don't want to have to make it complex. And so just click share. And I mean, this has been YouTube's issue with them trying to be a little more corporate focused with some of their technologies like these things are born to share 
and get out there. So then to try to reel it in or put some constraints around it is is, is complicated. And I thought Zoom acted really fast. I mean, I don't want to make this a big pitch about Zoom, but I, I've been impressed with how they've <laughs> yeah, responded. Yeah, we should probably get thing. some sponsorship deals from yeah. you. Yeah, for sure. At least if you guys want to come on the show. <laughs> I, but I think that, you know, you bring up, there's kind of this underlying theme that I always, I, I hear as we continue to talk here is that intersection of security and ease of use. Mm -hmm. Is that, you know, that's always the challenge intrinsically as you add more security to a solution two-factor authentication, you know, password complexity, got to change your passwords, right? That doesn't make it as easy, right? Right. It's a lot easier if there's no passwords and you just click a button and uh, it just works. And I think that's always that intersection. I always find is kind of more like a traffic accident than, you know, kind of two things meeting and, and getting better. Right. Yeah, for sure. And there has been that interesting like intersection of, you know, it's been much easier to access and manage your data, but there's also been an influx of these services that provide you with greater security. And even arguably like they have made it really easy too to be more secure. I mean, you have something that's like a 2FA service or a single sign-on service and it's as easy as just knowing your own password and making sure that's pretty unique, but it's still way more secure and protects your business a lot more. I mean, yeah, really? single sign-on is definitely at the top of that list as far as that, like, that intersection of ease of use and security. Like, that's one of the few tools I've seen that provides an even more secure solution, which is at the same time easier to use than, this, like, remembering a username and password for every site. Um, I think that's been a major, major improvement, and I'm excited to see the adoption spread out there. Absolutely. That's Avocta, you said? Right. Oh, I mean, uh, and single sign-on in general. Oh, just SSO, yeah, yeah. Okta, Okta right. certainly is, is at the top of that list there. Yeah, I, this is a crappy analogy, but I'm going to make it anyway. because <laughs> Go think for it. it. It applies somewhat. And I, I look at it like Okta is, it's such a baseline, or SSO in general, it's such a baseline now. Like, it is the minimum entry into security for any company. They have to have it. Like, if you're running without it, you're just, you're making your life miserable and opening yourself up to all kinds of exposure. Uh, it's kind of like a burglar going through a neighborhood and seeing a sign on the lawn that says alarm by whoever and going, you know, the next house doesn't have that sign. I'm just going to go to the next house. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I think kind of, you know, that's one of those situations, single sign on that's like, it's a win for both groups. Yeah. Uh, I can't tell you how many times, you know, helping end users that they they open up the little pencil drawer under their desk and they're supposed to know with 37 <laughs> different passwords written on it. And and yeah, and it's well, it's like, all right, well, I think I changed this system to that one. Like, so the user is excited about SSO because it's now just the same username and password everywhere. Honestly, and, the and, fact that they had 37 different post-it notes was honestly better than I was expecting there. I mean, it was yeah. I just managing that little thing. I mean, before nice, these nice click like Okta, just, yeah, let me save my credentials for the site. That was a lot of post-it notes. Now, I think it's probably negatively impacting post-it notes business, but <laughs> we'll kind of see as the technology improves. Now, I do think that like it's also very important for somebody like yourself in that IT management role because now when you need to remove a user or you have a suspected issue, it's very quickly to know that you've shut their access off everywhere. Yeah, the automation games are fantastic. I mean, you can orchestrate provisioning and turn up of accounts. Uh, ours just you know, is great. It flows from our HRIS into 
Okta into G Suite and all of our other SaaS services. And I mean, it makes, we've gone from like three days of provisioning users, granted like our users are coming on maybe faster than some, maybe we've had groups of 20 plus on starting on a Monday, but uh, it, it takes a long time to provision that many regardless, you know, unless you're automating uh, as best you can. So our team went from starting on a Wednesday and completing on a Monday when they arrived, like there was even some weekend work in, in the early stages when it was just a couple of us uh, to now we're just a well-oiled machine. We do it in one day. We do it in less than a day. Yeah. And I, I think when you have that mix of a lot of on-prem systems and stuff in closets that they get overlooked and it's very easy to kind of keep those workflows in check when you're adding users. But I feel like it's more on the, the backside of that, removing users okay. and making sure you've actually capped everyone's access. And, you know, much to what Ryan said earlier about security audits and making sure, you know, your providers are doing what they say they're doing. That's as a person who uses credit cards or has uh, point of sale transactions or is in the medical space, like you guys are also as end users certifying that you're removing access from people to maintain your half of the compliance, right? So that's a two-way street. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm sure, you know, Ryan can probably, you you and I, I know we talk to customers pretty frequently about this. Like, I think when customers kind of bring this up, do you find, Ryan, that they're really bringing kind of their half of that investment in certification and, and compliance that they understand, you know, what's in, what's required for them to kind of fulfill their duties? It varies a lot. I mean, they're, they're, this is still a very emerging space right now. And I think we're going to start seeing integration becoming a much bigger requirement as things, as things continue to move forward. Like I've, I've talked to people who have basically told me that if you can't integrate with our single sign-on provider, you're not even getting in the front door. Um, and that's just the first step of this. And then uh, at the same time, I talked to a lot of people who are very trepidatious about the cloud who sometimes don't even realize that they're using it. Like I've talked to people who don't like the fact that we're a cloud managed system, but all their emails running through G Suite and they're running through Azure Active Directory. Like I've, the number of those conversations is kind of startling. Um, but I think a lot of people have those same sort of fears without necessarily understanding some of the tech behind it. And then at the same time, there are people who understand the tech perfectly and still don't like it. Um, they're still very much in the space that Morgan was talking about, about having every single thing under their own thumb. Um, and I can, while I can understand that, I think those people are becoming fewer and fewer over time. Well, I think that's a good transition and probably leads to what I think Bjorn wanted to talk about earlier, which is like, when is it a good time to have an on-prem server? Like, when is that a good option? Because, you know, cloud is obviously, you know, where things are moving to, what, you know, the future looks more like it's more agile, it's, you know, quicker to adapt. It's obviously a bit more secure based on how you choose to do that implementation. But there are still cases where people want to use on-prem because it is almost necessary for their business. Yeah, I mean, the obvious one for me is media. Having come from a media company, uh, there's a lot of video editing and video specifically in media. Uh, A lot of video editing, very high resolution that just requires incredible amounts of storage uh, and a lot of speed. Editors don't have a lot of patience uh, to, or a lot of time, not even just patience, but uh, a lot of time to to wait for video transfer and storage. So uh, actually a lot of uh, media companies are using local attached storage to the actual machine, the editing machine and carrying around hard drives and handing it off for 
an IT or uh, or other technical department to to upload uh, and and consolidate, which also brings up an interesting point. We were able to find a little loophole in our uh, in our. and license and they're going to hate me saying this but uh what you can do is you can put your evergreen kind of video up into one of these providers and have the backup and depending on how often you access it and we've talked about other storage with aws for example the different tiers and like the, the longer term storage of of data that uh, you don't access very much, but yeah, taking advantage of that was great at the media company. So that was kind of our backup <laughs> system. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, it's we've always looked at now with the advent of solid state drives and speed and and kind of like really, you know, the evolution of computers and adding speed to specific components now to match the crazy fast processors that we have. We had to kind of you know take a step back and fix everything around the processor, right? The processor was always the weakest point. And now you're looking at that same kind of thing where you had these fusion drives or hybrid drives where it's half SSD and half spinning disk so that things that you access more frequently were in the faster part and things kind of tiered back into the slower part. Um, cloud is kind of the larger scale version, I would think of that, Yeah. you know, where you kind of can put things maybe on-prem that you want you access frequently you use every day like that video that you're talking about and you can kind of let stuff just fade up in the background into slower storage and you know yeah maybe it takes a little bit longer to access it but you've kind of goes into this dark hole of data storage yeah yeah and i mean to build on jeff's question even there i think something that gets lost in silicon valley because i know as a as a tech hub this these sorts of um concerns don't get brought to us much of the time but there are vast swaths of the us where gigabit ethernet or like internet is not even considered like there are people out there who would who would sacrifice quite a bit just to get a 10 megabit uplink um and there's and those companies at the end of the day there are going to be times where cloud is just not technically viable there are some solutions and workarounds for that, but I think that it's not, this isn't a one size fits all solution um, just because of the physical infrastructure in place. And it might take quite a while for it to get to that point. Yeah. And I, you know, an interesting thing that always comes up with on-prem too is, you know, one of the clear advantages of cloud is this idea of like redundancy and how, you know, you can really protect your data when you are looking at on-prem, you know, what does redundancy kind of look like? Like what are, like how do you kind of go about that and ensuring that you can do it? Or is it even really feasible for many of these organizations to do that in a way that truly protects their data um, in a way that they need to? Yeah, it gets expensive fast. Especially on-prem. I mean, and I think I've definitely been in those conversations with CFOs and everywhere else and it's like well I need a hundred thousand dollars worth of servers but to put it in redundancy I need two hundred thousand dollars and now I need additional equipment in there to manage that redundancy 
So, you know, what started as a hundred thousand dollar projects now creeping to a $500,000 project. Mm -hmm. And I need it offsite and I, in a different space available. Yeah. And then I need connectivity between the two sites. So and then that's twice as much cooling. Cause now I got four racks of equipment versus one. So you're building hypervisors, you're building ESX, you know, some VMware across both that has some kind of failover. It gets so complex. You're basically yeah, just and then you weren't far enough away. provider at that point. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then that's kind of where it's the cloud just comes in. It's like, well, I can let you consume it on demand for a small <laughs> monthly fee, and I'll give you all that for free. Yeah. The data protection stuff is just so crucial nowadays. Like, I, I, one thing that gets brought up in these conversations is like, what happens if the data is like destroyed? What happens if there's a fire? But one thing that, key, that we have to consider with all these storage methods is that corruption is guaranteed. Like if, if, a da if data sits on a disk for too long, no matter what the medium is, eventually that data ones and zeros will start getting flipped. And that's one thing that even if you have just two storage drives, that might not be enough for mission critical applications. So if yep. you have a cloud server with five redundant storage cells, you don't need to worry about that data even getting destroyed. They'll run a check every day. And if one of those ones and zeros doesn't match on one of those four, then you can just go in, replace all the data, and you're good to go every single day. And that's, that is crucial. Yeah, and I think that's like an interesting segue to kind of, you know, not to plug, you know, Verkata, but something that we're all pretty familiar with is like, you know, the fact of like an MVR, you know, that's a single point of failure. Um, and the approach that, you know, we've kind of taken with our hybrid cloud architecture is, you know, with you could either have like an MVR that's fully backing everything back up to the cloud, which is just like pure redundancy and ridiculousness and cost, or you could have an approach that, you know, stores your data that's important to the cloud while also not sacrificing everything um, in your resources to backing up literally everything that you have. Well, that um, really goes back to Bjorn's point about the media, the media exception to a lot of what we're talking about there. One thing about video is that it's dense. It's very hard to store at scale. So the idea of keeping a backup of, let's say, your 200 camera video deployment constantly, even if you have the bandwidth for it, that's still going to be a tremendous undertaking there. And that's really where you get into sort of the benefits of a cloud, of a hybrid cloud model, where if you keep the stuff that's easy to store on site, on site, and then you have backups if you need it, I think that that's a real advantage of sort of taking the half and half approach that Verkata is a little bit. Well, and, and back to spinning disk, you know, when it's big and bulky like that, you're not really putting that on SSD, you're putting that on low cost spinning disk, which, you know, have a higher failure rate, um, definitely getting better. But as disks get bigger, then that's a larger chunk of data that can be potentially destroyed at once. And I think, you know, much to your point, earlier when you were talking about the 3 a.m. wake-ups to replace a hard drive, that rebuild in a big data array doesn't always go well or it mm -hmm. takes a lot of time. I mean, replacing a 12 terabyte drive in a storage array, that takes a lot of time to rebuild from yeah. all the other drives and now you're degrading the performance across the array. And I think that's where kind of having a distributed workload with that hybrid cloud model and having you know solid state storage on there, high density solid state storage, makes that a lot easier. And you're not necessarily dependent on a single point of failure of one device, you know, kind of dying on you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. sure. So, you know, with storage, especially like hard drives and stuff, it's, it's not limitless. It's not necessarily scalable. So I think that's a good way to transition into, you know, the flip side of what makes on-prem good, but what makes a cloud solution 
you know, best for, you know, someone. So if a company, you know, or a team is considering what their current solution looks like, maybe they're on-prem or maybe they're starting something new and they're deciding between on-prem versus cloud, you know, as they look at their business today and then two years, five years, et cetera, you know, what should they be looking at to think about, should I be choosing a cloud system maybe instead to grow my business? I think one of the first indicators and first clues is going to be, is your business just going to remain in one location? You know, are you going to have more than one location? Because that uh, already with two locations, the cloud's already making more sense than trying to do anything local. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think if nothing else that we've learned maybe in the COVID pandemic here is that flexibility in where you're working, how you're working, what you're doing is like really critical. Mm-hmm. So you can make a, you can design a system that's on-prem, that's very simple, gives you a ton of features that may, you know, work in that very specific use case that you have. But if you try to modify that use case halfway through, it's not as simple. And I think that kind of data accessibility, blurring the lines of on-prem versus off-prem and where you're accessing and using your data is pretty big there too. You know, I'm sure Ryan, you know, you and I, I can, we've had conversation with customers that are trying to figure out how to manage facilities that now nobody should be in or, you know, want to know when people go in there because we got to do contract tracing. We've got all these different kind of use cases and accessibility has become kind of the underlying motivator and having the conversation is I need to be able to get to this stuff anytime. The ease of use part of that is becoming increasingly more relevant as this, as the current situation we're in keeps developing. Like, I mean, you see people who need IT teams just to get into Zoom and try to get into like basic services like that. And I'm not, I'm not um, being, um, being flippant about anything. Like a lot of these technologies are very hard for people to use, but honestly, like you, when you're talking about like Zoom or G Suite, you're talking about some of the most accessible software. Whereas if you're trying to like set up VPNs and tunneling through um, into your private networks, the number of people I know who can do that reliably mostly hold engineering degrees. Um, where I'm, whereas if you're trying to like have your entire teaching staff get through a VPN into some like on-premise system, that I don't think that that's going to work very well for very long. Yeah, every one of those holes obviously increases your security exponentially, and then the amount of people going through those. VPNs uh, are increasing your exposure all the time. So yeah, that is, it's not always a, a great model to, to try to just create VPNs into, into whatever you need to access. And then obviously bandwidth, huge concern with that, what you're trying to transfer through it. You know, I just, yeah, I try to stay away from as best I can. Yeah, one nice yep. thing I always like to bring up on the cloud front on our end is the difference between an inbound and an outbound connection, which I'm not going to dwell on for too long. But the great thing about it is that if you are having the cloud manage your login, manage your hosting and all of that, the cloud's the one responsible for making sure that, that authentication goes well, that everyone's there where they need to be. Whereas if you are the one accepting all these connections inbound to your network, then it's kind of on you to figure out whether or not someone should be getting access or not. And that's a harder than it sounds. Yeah, definitely. I think another one that, you know, kind of with cloud too that we alluded to earlier, which is this idea of redundancy. You know, I tend to sometimes wake up in like a cold sweat from thinking about it back in the day, but early in my career, you know, I was working with a few different teams and I had access to the FTP server and uh, 
I deleted everything. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. you know, that was just me being, you know, a young employee that had access to a lot of stuff. Um, and once that happened, it was gone. And so, you know, especially when we think about, you know, when we do these considerations for where to go, you know, to me, that comes up as a big concern. Like, basically, if it lives somewhere that is controllable to anybody, and it doesn't really have that necessary backup uh, redundancy, like somewhere in the cloud, it's a huge risk to your business. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've worked at certain companies that have offered me administrative rights to particular, like, very important systems, and I told them, no, I don't want it. <laughs> like, that's that's honestly been where my head's been at. I have seen too many people hit the enter button one space too soon and then just devastated everything, and I don't need that on my conscience. I definitely have gotten that phone call before. I had a customer that uh, had moved over to using Dropbox, and they had like shared folders amongst, you know, the, the groups, they hired a new person, came in was kind of, they were developing this new team. And so they Dropbox, you know, installed, user starts using it. And he's like, yeah, man, I don't know, it's Dropbox taking up half my computer. I deleted all of it. <laughs> and so not only did he delete it off his computer, which was his goal, he deleted it for everybody else. Sink, yeah. And so, yeah, and so it synced back up, deleted it for everybody. And, and I got the panic phone call yeah, can you just log into Dropbox and undo it? I'm like, I don't think you understand how that works. It does not work like that. So, you know, understanding what is backup versus sync, what is stored where, and when you have important things, especially in, you know, the legal context of um, discovery and hold, or if you have an incident where you have data that you need to be able to maintain um, for, you know, some sort of third party, that understanding the details between that, is is very important and i think to the average user not always as as transparent or clear one thing i love about aws's interface not to not to give even more marketing to them um but just sh how sh completely difficult it is to do anything tremendously stupid like if i want to make something public on aws they will make me write a five paragraph essay <laughs> why i need to do this and what a terrible idea it probably is and just and like just having make, making you type in like i confirm at multiple stages everywhere around the process it's a it's a pain and it certainly is the opposite end of that spectrum between security and ease of use but when you need to have something secure making it hard to do something dumb is one of the chief ways of making sure that you don't do it in the first place yeah, I think we benefit here also from a very intelligent engineering culture that they have very strict practices. So I don't really worry too much or at all about what, even if they're capable, what they may do. I mean, there are staging levels, there are tests, dev, acceptance, you know, from different engineers have to accept changes and approve push, you know, and I just think that there is... A, fantastic practice that we have about that. So I don't worry so much about that, thankfully. Uh, but there is time lost for other departments with what you're bringing up. You know, yeah, you have the luxury of the backup in the cloud and the redundancy, but there is going to be time lost where it's getting to the person who can restore it. It's waiting for the restore to happen. So depending on the amount of data, what, you know, what it is. Uh, so, you know, access levels, having a zero trust model, uh, really just base minimum access for everyone. It, it's frustrating. You know, I get tons of requests for more access, but it has to go through a strict approval process just because of this very issue. Uh, absolutely. And, and we've even seen it ourselves. You know, like not only are we a creator of a product and a solution, but we're consumer. 
of it. You know, we eat our own dog food and um, we very quickly learned in the beginning of the, uh, our access control products life, uh, the, that exact thing that if you give people the wrong buttons to click on, bad things can happen. And I can tell you, uh, it's a career limiting move to lock your CEO out of the building more than five <laughs> times. Uh, that does kind of come back and well. yeah, it comes back to haunt you at some point. Um, but even something as simple as that, where users were just trying to show, you know, look how simple it is to change a user's access level or to change something. And here now we have somebody that physically can't move around the building. And, and uh, we had to quickly, you know, kind of pivot from how we demo to make sure that we stopped doing that. Or we kept opening doors. We kept, you know, opening physical doors outside. And so it's kind of interesting where you also now take, you know, what we've talked about stuff in the virtual world, the things you can't touch, the things you can't do, and then mix it now with, with real life impacts in the physical world. Yep. Yep. And I think, you know, it's an interesting thing you bring up there, which is, you know, with a cloud type solution like that, you're able to do things relatively quickly, but you're also able to correct them relatively quickly as well. You know, in the you know traditional sense with you're doing something that's on-prem, you know, you have to, you know, download some software and install that onto the device and to make those changes. Whereas here, you know, when you need to make a change, especially on the access control side, you know, it's a couple lines of code and you deploy it and that change is live and it's ready to go. Um, which, you know, truly shows some of the advantages of being able to take care of things that are potentially alarming. Um, I think the same goes for a lot of software solutions. You know, if you recognize that somebody is doing something in a tool you're using, you can quickly change those permissions. If you realize um, that someone is doing more than they should on a certain program, but you still need them of access, you could definitely change that, which I think, you know, kind of leads me to my next question for you, Bjorn, as, you know, I think you and I have dealt with this on a few different uh, products of our own that we uh, use across the company is like, how can IT teams really ensure that their teams are, their companies are choosing the right cloud services for their business? Yeah, I, again, I think it goes back to betting on the right horse, you know, who, who the clientele is, how long they've been in business. Mm -hmm. You know, I really feel like that's the, the things that the indicators that you need to be yeah, based access control yeah. yep yeah yeah, oh yeah for sure that clientele bit is probably the easiest litmus test i could think of yeah like if you think netflix hasn't done their due diligence on aws i, I think you have another thing coming there if you're looking well, for like the government agencies yeah. Yeah, absolutely yeah cool so i mean i think obviously we've covered a lot about the cloud and it all sounds really great but there's probably still a lot of you know potential hesitations um so maybe we can talk on a little bit of that and, you know, maybe bring some ease or touch on those topics and how it's kind of evolved in the space. Um, I think we've talked a lot about having access to the data. I think one that comes up a lot, and I think we talked about a little bit earlier, is this idea of cost. Cloud sounds shiny and new. Um, must be expensive. Is it? I think it really is driven on more transparency than expense. So, I mean, I think there's things that are expensive, I think there's things that, you know, maybe if you just look at them on the surface, you're like, oh my, I can go buy a 12 terabyte hard drive for, you know, a hundred bucks. And here, this is costing me 10 bucks a month. And you kind of don't always remember everything that goes into that total cost, like the bandwidth, the power, the cooling, the redundancy, the fact that there's four of those 12 terabyte hard drives. So I think, you know, ultimately, this is a question I get a lot as an SE, 
total cost of ownership rank and back me up. And, you know, we have some calculators that we work with customers on and, and um, AWS and Azure and G- Google all have calculators that you can figure out stuff and compare it. You got to remember all the things that go into that and all the things that, you know, as somebody who's trying to manage costs on prem, you, you know, maybe always hesitate like, well, I could do the eight hour hard drive replacement versus four because it'll save me 10% on this support agreement. And then you get into the panic situation. You're like, why did I do that? Uh, And I think that's something that you have to balance. And if you truly take apples to apples and factor in all those different components to it, um, you know, for sure it's, it's cheaper being out there. I mean, I think is that something like as you've kind of made those migration paths over time, was that kind of how did you look at that total cost to cost justify outside of the improvements of workflow, ease of use, all the things we've kind of talked about? I'm sure you know the CFO looks at that as just pure numbers. How did you find those conversations? One for you as an IT leader who's trying to modernize an organization and make those changes, but. Yeah, I've had CFOs come from both angles. I've had them be very capital driven and purchases being, uh, you know, CapEx purchases versus OpEx purchases. And I've had both ends of that spectrum. But I think that, I mean, I don't mean to alienate anybody with this, but given the current way that the climate has changed, the technology is changing so fast, I can't see how there are many reasons anymore to to stay on-prem. It just really... I can't, besides the cost, like I, you can't really remove that fact. So it, it's really now looking at the cost of administering. Also, we haven't really talked about that. Like there is a cost to administering a lot of SaaS apps. And we are exactly the opposite of what like a full on-prem company would be. And so we have some administration overhead as far as managing those SaaS apps. So the automation behind that becomes critical and getting people who understand how to how to orchestrate those together, um, and that goes for access and you know when to go up a tier. You know the salespeople are definitely on it as far as the SaaS apps are concerned. They'll let you know like, you know, you these are the advantages to moving up to our enterprise suite, and you guys are at a point you should think about it. So you get a lot of that. So I, I do feel like on prem there was always gray area and everything. Hmm. You know, you, you might have to maybe. Maybe you for miscounted how many computers you have and, you know, you have a, a policy that pushes out an application and there was always that gray area of leniency around that. And it's like, all right, well, you know, honesty was, you know, always requested, but inadvertently, whether it was on, on purpose or not, you know, maybe you installed a particular application on two extra machines and sometimes some of those things were tougher to track on premise. And so, yeah, you know, I think that's kind of where, cloud for sure is stricter but i think it's to me it's just honestly it's more about transparency i mean you're not you don't have the same surprises and definitely Mm -hmm. on on premise i've i know i've always had surprises i got pretty good at trying to figure out what surprises were but i'd still (laughs) always get new ones yeah i mean i think the biggest pushback I get from a lot of people on the cloud side of things is this idea of like ownership people like having stuff And when they buy stuff, they like to hold their stuff and look at their stuff. And with the cloud, you don't get any stuff to hold. You don't, you, you, you don't, when we, when you buy, like if you get into G Suite, 
you get a G Suite login and they take care of all of it. But you're all of a sudden you see that I think a lot of people who are paying for these systems see them as these like pits they throw money into. Things work, they get what they're asking for, but they don't own something at the end of the day. Yep. And I think we're seeing less and less of that as people are seeing the advantages of it. But I think people are still really into like these NVR DVR models because if I buy an NVR DVR, even if something goes wrong with it, at least it's something broken that I own and I could potentially fix. Yeah. And the cloud model is definitely, the, the recurring charges are definitely scary for someone who doesn't feel like they're getting something tangible out of it. Yeah, and I think on the flip side of that is, you know, if you think about it, you don't get a lot of buyer's remorse though when you choose on the cloud side. There's always gonna be something sexy and new and, you know, depending on the provider you pick, you're also investing in having the latest and greatest. You know, AWS is always updating their centers. They're gonna always have the best products because that is what they deliver. So when you do choose something on-prem, you're pretty much stuck with what you bought from that day and that's how it's gonna be until you upgrade it. Whereas when you're investing in a service provider, it's in their best interest to keep their place running shiny and new and always getting better and better. So, you know, that's the flip side of it that people could also consider while they might not get something to own, you know, you're kind of subscribing to something that's even better and better every day. Yeah, making the jump to cloud definitely seems to me like the hardest hurdle to go over. Once you're there, I think everybody who gets into the cloud, I very rather, I very rarely see people who get into the cloud and then revert back to an <laughs> on-premise system. That is yep. extremely rare and I think that's telling. Yep, for sure. I will say I would agree with you, Ryan, though. I do love that new switch smell. It's great. <laughs> but like I, yeah, when the, once those fans yeah. kick in. I don't yeah, know. I just like a lot of the people electric. that I talk to just genuinely seem that the major thing they're getting out of their on-premise equipment is that it is a physical thing that they can touch. Yeah, I, And I totally get that. I yeah. don't miss racking and stacking stuff and cabling. <laughs> but it looks so um, nice when it's done, though. I know, like, but it is, and it is just that new <laughs> yeah. server smell. There's just... It's not much like it. Yeah. Until it becomes a rat's nest of wires. Yeah, pretty much. And then you just, you know, the first time you have a hard drive replacement, you're like, why did I do this? Yeah. <laughs> well, guys, I think this was a great conversation on, you know, understanding data. Before we head out, you know, I'd love to give an opportunity if you guys have any closing thoughts on, you know, this topic. I think we've covered a lot today. Uh, hopefully it was really helpful for everyone who is listening. Um, but yeah, uh, Morgan, any closing thoughts? I mean, just, you know, always ask questions. If, you should never work with a cloud provider or a partner or anything that doesn't warmly welcome a security questionnaire or anything else. Now on the flip side, I've, they're kind of boring to fill out, but <laughs> it, it's kind of, it's, it, I enjoy when customers bring them to me because then I know we're having a good conversation and we're both mutually bought into uh, securing the data. Absolutely. Bjorn. I would say build your technology in, and this applies to almost every single business, even brick and mortar in a lot of ways that, people can work from anywhere, that you can access the technology from anywhere. And at least the technical pieces of your business are, are available. Great. And last but not least, but from the booth, Ryan. Yeah. I mean, I think the only thing I have to say here is that the cloud definitely isn't going away. It's only getting bigger with time. And the longer you wait before making that investment, the harder it's going to be because there's going to come a time when the cloud is your only option. And when that happens, that migration is going to start be being a lot more painful. Um, 
that being said, I, I think I agree with everything everybody else said. Do your due diligence. Any person that you talk to that gets evasive when you ask them hard questions is probably not someone you want to be in business with. Awesome. Well, that's our episode, guys. Thanks for joining me today. And thank you everybody out there for joining us. And uh, we look forward to continuing to share some stories and some thoughts uh, from Verkata. And uh, tune in next time. Thanks. Cool.